In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Caitlin Parker. Come along as Michael Dexter and Holly Briggs talk with Caitlin about her career as a certified child life specialist. Her compassion and insight are sure to uplift and make a lasting impact. This episode is called Living with Purpose as a Child Life Specialist. Hello, and welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals, but most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, and always valuable. I'm Holly Briggs, a professional development specialist at BCN and one of your hosts for today. I am joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCN. Hi, Michael. Hey, Holly. Great to be with you again today. It's great to have you with us. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have Caitlin Parker. Caitlin is bringing a unique perspective to our podcast in her role as a certified child life specialist. We have so many questions to get to today, so I will simply hand this over to Michael for him to please introduce us to our BCN and friend, Caitlin. Yeah, Holly, I'm really excited to talk with Caitlin today because I love to learn more about her role. Caitlin's a certified child life specialist at Atrium Health Levine Children's in Charlotte, North Carolina. And in her 13-year career at Levine, she has worked in various roles across multiple service lines in pediatric and adult populations. She's driven by a passion for enhancing family nuclei, coping, and advocacy in the hospital setting that will carry over to better physical, emotional, and psychosocial outcomes for the trajectory of their health journey. Whether it is a child's first visit to the ED or their 30th admission, Caitlin believes in recognizing and impacting the momentous touch points during these visits, which will support the development and well-being of the entire family. These moments are where you will find certified child life specialists like Caitlin doing their best work. Caitlin, welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Hey, Michael and Holly. Thanks for having me. I'm really interested in your role because in my previous work, I have not worked with a child life specialist. And so for people like me that are listening, could you explain a little bit about what your role is and then what really encouraged you to have a career as a child life specialist? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So child life is uh, in its toddler infancy stage. We just passed the 100-year mark from the 1920s when Mott Children's in Michigan um, started an early play program. And uh, the 50s is when Emma Plank uh, went and created a program. She asked a physician to create a program to address the social, emotional, and educational needs of hospitalized children at Cleveland City Hospital. So fast forward through 70s and 80s, you saw programs, the Child Life Council, which is the governing body, came in. And then in the 80s and 90s, you started seeing published work and research validation of child life being present in the hospital setting. Uh, 2014, so you know, not so long ago, not even a decade ago, the American Association of Pediatrics was recognizing child life and said that it was um, a, an integral part of family-centered care and patient-centered care models and included should be included as quality indicator uh, in the delivery of services for children and families in healthcare settings. So that recognition uh, from a professional and research and validation background was really important. So 
I was exposed to child life as a patient when I was in the JC Burn Center, and they have dual certified child life rec therapists that are working with pediatric patients. At the time, they were all in the same unit together, and I I would see them working on co-treatment and uh, psychosocial support, and I found that fascinating, and it sparked a curiosity that I followed all the way through certification. Uh, I was on track to become a psychologist and had to kind of pave my own way as there wasn't a program at uh, the university that I was at. And I worked with the career services to amass what I needed to bridge into an internship and sat for board certification two weeks after I graduated college. Uh, I became a certified child life specialist in 2011 and started at Levine Children's as PRN, moved into night shift in the emergency department and spent two and a half years there. Uh, With the rapid growth of the program at the time, I transitioned into a new role serving pediatric dialysis, rehabilitation, and then overflow support uh, while we were getting more positions approved. I spent two years after that working in pre-op PACU, and I'm currently a PRN specialist and have accumulated the 13 years of experience across all of these specialties at Atrium Health of the Children's Hospital. The role of a child life specialist molds to fit the population they serve, but the core foundations are rooted in psychosocial and emotional support through the lens of developmental principles. The mission statement of the Association of Child Life Professionals called ACLP, which is what the Child Life Council is now called, states, we as child life professionals strive to reduce the negative impact of stressful and traumatic life event situations that affect the development, health, and well-being of infants, children, youth, and families. We embrace the value of play as a healing modality as we work to enhance the optimal growth and development of infants, children, and youth through assessment, intervention, prevention, advocacy, and education. So that's the overarching picture. Uh, We meet families where they are in their journey, assess their developmental needs and potential risks or stressors to optimizing their coping skills. Next comes intervention. So this is the creative space to plan, uh, enact goals to improve patient and family care and their understanding of their health diagnosis. We tackle deficits in emotional regulation, normalize the environment or equipment and implement safety plans for future procedures. Therapeutic relationships built via play and communication host an environment for autonomy and mastery. There's also an important role that's growing in many programs and it's a seat at the table. This means child life specialists being in the room for a professional collaboration on an administrative level to improve standards of practice along service lines, uh, making sure that the voice of child life is present in multidisciplinary settings, promotes proactive decision-making uh, with regards to training departments in psychosocial well-being and resilience. I talk about the difference between being on the carpet and on the tile. Uh, and clinically, I feel like we got a good understanding of that, knowing that tile means one-on-one patient-facing work, and then the boardroom decisions, aka the carpet. Um, and meshing those two populations together is how we get a real perspective on the growth and trajectory for pediatric services. So Caitlin, you explain that in such a way that I think anyone who, those who've had the privilege of working with a child life specialist before, and then those who like Michael and even myself haven't worked directly with one would understand really what your goals are as far as the profession and really get an understanding as to how that type of support 
can truly be a part of the the building block of a patient's care, that it could be foundational to getting that patient and their family all on the same page, understanding kind of what is happening, maybe what's happening in the future, and really taking out what is sometimes the fear in healthcare. And I think a lot of times, especially in pediatrics, it's the unknown to that patient, it's the unknown to that family. And being that advocate who can kind of help to bridge that fear and help to set them up for success down the line. And I think that anyone who's ever either worked in the hospital, been in the hospital, we all have understood that fear before. And sometimes we would love to have someone to help us walk that out with a patient. And I know as a nurse, that is always my goal is to figure out how best can I help not only help this patient physically, but mentally prepare for the journey ahead. I can tell you're very passionate about your role and about your profession, but what drives your passion for this role in healthcare? What is it personally to you that has made you so passionate about being a child life specialist? Yeah, I think that, uh, I think that professional boundaries are really important, um, but I think that the passion comes from a very personal place. So my motto manifesto is make it better. And sometimes I'll say that to myself before I start my shift, we're going to make it better today. In whatever situation I strive to find my role for improving our patient's stay. Um, it can be as simple as grabbing a snack for a mom who's not been able to take a moment for herself. Um, and it goes all the way to complex diagnosis teaching and sibling support during a bereavement. There is an opportunity across that interaction with the family to target and pinpoint opportunities to make it better. Um, I can't cure the situation. I can't complete the surgery. I can't fix that part of their stay, but I can help their lens and their perspective. And I can advocate with the team to get them the resources they might need or the consult they might need. And I can work at the bedside with that child and create safe space for them. And those pieces of healthcare have become so much more widely recognized. And that's been my passion since the beginning is to hold moments with families and to help make something better. I think it's important to remember that we're in healthcare for a purpose and uh, it gets clouded. And in the last couple of years, it's become really clouded for people and compassion needs to still exist. So when you are doing whatever tasks you are with a family, I kind of think about it as in you're holding that moment with them while you're holding it, your hands are going to get a little dirty, right? You're going to hand back that moment to that family when you leave. And we have to hand it back because they're in charge of that moment. Um, and handing that back also means that we take our dirty hands back with us and it affects us. And we carry those moments with our patients and families. Um, and so it's going to affect us and it's going to hurt our heart and it's going to take some time to get over um, or to process and use later on. And I think the moment when you're doing patient care and you can walk out of the room and you didn't hold it with the family or your hands aren't a little dirty, that compassion isn't there. And I think that's important to notice and recognize and then kind of reevaluate. 
Um, so I, I feel like that's how I am outside of work. I tend to be uh, the fixer. I try to hold that to a manageable expectation in the hospital. Um, and that's, I think that's just a lifelong passion is we are here for a purpose on purpose. And we are meant to be communal and to support one another. And I tend to gravitate towards individuals who are experiencing uh, what the general community would see as a little taboo, which is the, the trauma and the more intimate, hard parts of their life. Well, I really like how your goal and your passion is to create a really positive story in the middle of a really negative moment for people. And, um, you know, you've had so many opportunities to impact so many people. In order to do that, I think it's important that nurses understand your role and also understand the value in the role. And so for you to work with nurses on a day-to-day basis, um, what would be something that nurses could do to better support you and your profession and your role? And then what are some ways that um, you would say that you could really support the nursing staff that 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 collaboration would be built better between you and the nurses you work with? The first thing is know your resources, right? If you have child life, Uh, at your facility, uh, even if they're not on your unit, ask to speak to their manager. Uh, See if you can have an in-service with your team targeting the touch points of pediatrics in your direct care. So your subspecialty diagnosis, wherever you are. And ask to shadow a specialist during their shift to get a real fly on the wall perspective of their services. I love to do that with different service lines in therapy and just ask, can I have two hours to follow you around today? I really want to understand what you're doing at the bedside or how you're collaborating. I think that the best thing we can do, regardless of the letters after our name, is to learn from one another and to continually learn. Uh, Medicine is more an art than a science, and it is ever evolving, and it's abstract and defined, right? We can improve that by understanding all of the different parts of what makes it function. After that, advocate for a position on your team. That's a little a little plug for growth. Um, if you have child life on your unit though, uh, ask them to assess your patients. Uh, talk through what they are able to offer based on your population. Uh, child life looks a little different when it's in a standalone children's hospital or a clinic setting. Um, there's even private practice that's growing. Um, so making sure that you know what they are able to do and where their strengths lie. And based on my experience and department, we're looking for first-time admissions, uh, patients exhibiting acute stress to the environment, uh, new diagnoses, that's a very important one, uh, scarcity of resources and caregiver presence, upcoming procedures, uh, developmental delays and sensory processing disorders, social services or facility placement plans, um, milestone celebrations, that's an exciting one, and bereavements as well. So those are a lot of the consults that we get. We are there for the playroom, if that's applicable. Uh, We are there to bring activities to the bedside, but there's a deeper portion to ACLP and child life overall that can really be integrated in the care. Um, So knowing that we're on the same team, 
there are nursing tasks, therapy tasks, and physician tasks, and they all can be supported by Child Life. Uh, Child Life can offer education on the patient's developmental level, normalization through medical play, co-treatment with physical therapy, uh, procedural support with distraction, positioning for comfort, and advocacy with physicians for pharmacological interventions, uh, legacy building, and dignifying watershed moments in their life. Continuity of care is also important uh, through follow-up across facilities, so making sure that I'm reporting off when that patient's going to be seen in the clinic, or if they were in the emergency department and they're going up to the ICU. Uh, Continuity of care is incredibly important to our team. Uh, Child life is not a replacement for primary nursing, uh, building a relationship with patients and families. Uh, We're an imperative whole body perspective to the care, and, and we're in addition but a necessary addition to the melody of healthcare. And with a world bent on recognition of mental health awareness, there's been no better time than now to magnify the work of disciplines that have been moving in the shadows of patient care and bring the resource into light. And you, again, I think you just are so well-spoken about not only your specialty, but just this kind of whole picture of healthcare I love that I'm recording this so that way I can listen to it again. So thank you for that. Um, Another, a a good question would be, what is some advice you would give to a nurse working in the ER or maybe a busy clinical setting that maybe doesn't have the ready resource of child life specialty and they want to develop better methods to interact with children and their caregivers? What would maybe be some advice that you could give them? Uh, This is a great moment to plug the conference in the fall in Charlotte. Uh, My colleague, Michelle, and I will be talking about this very thing, uh, building a toolkit. The biggest thing that comes to mind is busy does not have to compromise quality, and it can't compromise quality. So I would say take note of a few things. Um, What is the patient here for and how old are they? Uh, These are basic pieces of information we're going to be gathering anyway, but we really need to recognize what that means, right? Am I getting ready to treat a four-year-old or a 12-year-old? Are you assessing that they're developmentally on par for their age? So chronologically, they're 15, but there are some components of either their coping or their receptive language that makes me think I might need to approach this in a different manner. Who is present with the patient? Ooh, they can be your biggest support. So give the family a roadmap of expectation. And this is really simple, but really important. What is next? Who will they see? What can they do while they wait? We're going to go into the triage room and I need to do three things. I'm going to let you know what number one is and then doing that activity. I'm going to need to touch you to take your temperature. I'm gonna do it under your arm. Which arm would you like? Giving them autonomy and choice. It sounds silly. Uh, We start to sound like um, we're watching children's television and we've taken on that voice, but it's so important. They've come into this facility they've never seen before. It's fast paced, this is the clinic, this is an emergency room. Everyone's moving around and everyone has a role and they know what what they're doing. But here you are in the middle of that chaos, right? Put yourself in those shoes and look at what it looks like to you. This is scary. 
this is busy. I've never been here before. I don't know these people. I don't trust them yet. And we have to earn that trust. We can't just assume this patient is ready to receive care, especially pediatrics. Adults are a whole nother story too, but that child didn't necessarily volunteer to come in that day. Explain everything that you're doing, regardless if it will result in pain or not. And the quickest way to build rapport is communication. So be mindful of the language you use. We don't want to say, I'm going to give your arm a giant squeeze for a blood pressure cuff. We want to make sure we're saying, I need to give your arm a hug and let's count to 10 and see how it feels, right? A lot of people aren't comfortable with counting because maybe it'll take a little longer. I usually want to count to a moment of being present with the patient. So we're going to count to 10 and then I want you to tell me how you're feeling. We may not be done, but I'm giving you a goal. Let's see where we are. You know what? I think we need to count to 10 again and take a big, deep breath. And let's see how we feel then. Working through those moments together and giving them a really good goal to reach. You don't want to be apologetic for the care you're providing. One of the largest things I see, and it is very well-meaning, is for people to say, oh, I know, I'm so sorry. Oh, that mean nurse. Oh, I apologize. You want a scaffold affirming language. Engage the patient as a teammate rather than an opponent. We want to make sure that those children know, I don't have anything to apologize for. I am here to take care of your body. And I know this wasn't what you were expecting. And I know it hurt a little. Or I know you were scared. And we got through this together. And you did a great job right? There are ways to recognize the moment as being difficult and your role as being the one activating that difficult moment, but it is okay to give them the space to feel like we all did it together and we got through it. So use your resources. Uh, If the caregiver is engaged and appears to be securely attached to the child, work your rapport through them, empower them to assist you and model brave behavior. A method I love and works with a lot of groups of development, because I know we're spanning birth to 18, right? Um, But it works in any method, as long as we're being respectful of the age. Um, I do, we do, you do. It's a great method. I am going to take my temperature or I am going to put on the blue rubber band and then I'm going to do mom. We are going to do it together. Now it's your turn. So now you've given them an opportunity to see you do it. Caring, trusting parent in this perfect world of support. And now it's their turn. Another big hitter. Do not lie. This is hard. We want to protect children from what is coming up, but we lose every battle with a child, even at home, but with a patient when we don't prepare them and give them armor. So if the patient asks, am I going to get a shot? Affirm their curiosity and awareness by saying, that is a great question. I love how you used your own voice to ask. I don't know yet, but we'll make sure you know everything before it happens, right? Because if you say, oh, no, and then the plan of care changes, you have lost all credibility with that patient. 
whether you see them again or not, they'll remember that. And they're going to transfer that to every health experience that comes in the near future. And then you're making more work for your coworker to have to undo. Um, During procedures, the one voice method is fantastic. Uh, Ahead of an intervention, we have to do some prevention. Uh, Determine who will be assisting with positioning and support of the patient and who will be the voice talking the patient through the procedure. If you were three years old and you're getting an IV in the ER for the very first time and all you've ever had is well visits at primary care, and there are three adults you don't know, and it's 11 p.m., so it's way past your bedtime, and your mom's in there, and she's real tired because you've been real sick for 48 hours, and she's trying to hold you and rock you, and the nurse is looking, and the tech is helping hold, and then someone else is in there, and the child life specialist is trying to distract you after doing full medical prep, of course, and then everyone at the same time says, you're okay, you're fine, you're doing okay. All of us as healthcare professionals want that child to feel safe. We are trying to all affirm. But what it looks like to the child is everyone's talking at once. I can't focus on anything. And it turns into a panic. So determine that one person. Maybe it's mom. Maybe mom is so upset right now or dad is so upset or grandma needs to step out that we identify that the child life specialist built really good rapport. And we're going to let that person be the one voice. And in our minds, we're going to affirm this child, but we are not going to say it because it's not best for the child. Advocacy in this part of intervention may also mean discussing the plan of care with the treatment team uh, to opt for sedation, oral medication versus an IV, um, not attempting another poke because labs were obtained and wait to see the results before trying again. Um, So there's a lot of opportunities uh, to look at the picture and say, this is what the patient needs. This is what we need. How do they align? And then what order could the dominoes go in? Oftentimes, if we try for an IV, our our method is we're trying for an IV, we get the labs, the IV blows, and then we have to talk to the team and say, do we need the line right now for any purpose? Are we getting contrast? Are we getting medicine? Do we need to start fluids? And generally, if the answer is no to those, we need to see the white blood cell count or we want to um, assess their BMP. We will ask, can we wait till those labs are result, give the child a break, and then try again if we need to. Those are all great ways to advocate and to interrupt the, um, there's a term for it, when the medical trajectory takes over the, oh, what is it called? I'm not going to remember. Um, but it's when people get into one Um, It typically happens with physicians where they get into one mindset, one branch of medicine and assume the symptoms in one direction. Um, I think it's diagnosis momentum. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. And and it's very hard, especially like this is a whole nother conversation too, but especially with medical records and things now, there's so many things that once you start in one direction, it's so hard. There's like algorithms that start kicking off and things and it's so hard to pivot and change to a different direction. And so you get all these presets, right? Yeah. So uh, diagnosis momentum is something that I often find myself interrupting. People don't appreciate that. And it's not out of disrespect, right? We're all on the same team. 
and my number one goal and your number one goal is patient care, we get to that differently. We attack it by different modes, but it all works together. So I'll find myself interrupting rounding, which is not typical, but if we're going to do family-based rounding with all disciplines, we need to listen to all voices. We shouldn't waste one another's time, but if I feel like there's a component we need to interrupt, it's all based off of the patient's needs. Um, the, the last thing is follow-up. So check in upon completion of the visit and express how proud you are of that family and patient. Uh, giving feedback about how you noticed what they did well. Uh, internalization of a job well done is cumulative and long lasting for that patient. Uh, prizes and popsicles don't hurt though. I'll take one right now. Oh, <laughs> Caitlin, thank you for sharing that. I know you mentioned that you're going to be speaking on that along with a coworker of yours uh, in Charlotte. And so I certainly didn't want you to give away all your, all your secrets, but for those that can attend, it's really nice to hear from somebody with your expertise and, and be able to use that in their practice. Caitlin, what would you consider to be one of the greatest wins in your profession? Meaning, you know, when the, when everything falls into place and things get done right for the patient, for the team, or what would you say that win would kind of look like? You know, there's a, there's an element of humility and um, vulnerability that comes from multidisciplinary care or is required for multidisciplinary care. Uh, we need to all be ready to listen to one another. But then there's that other component, right? That confidence. Um, when you touch that tile and say, I am here to do something impactful and I'm going to do it. And if it's for one patient or it's for 10 patients, um, I'm going to figure it out. And I think in child life, we have a similar perspective. I want to be a bridge to autonomy and self-esteem and health literacy. I don't want to be a crutch. My biggest celebration is when a patient can come into a clinic setting, advocate for themselves, initiate their coping skills, and then complete the visit feeling proud, regardless of the good and bad that happened, but proud of how they were able to navigate that experience without child life present. Mm -hmm. That is the dream because we've made a full person that knows how to activate their own resources and knows how to integrate their needs to the healthcare world and has better health literacy, that's producing better, better community members when they leave us. So, so I feel like the, the humility and vulnerability is us allowing one another in the territorial nature of patient care or in our own uh, diagnostic momentum um, to stop for a minute and listen to something that might be conflicting to us. And then to walk into that room and juxtapose a different personality of confidence that we're gonna take this on together. We always like to ask each person on this podcast this very same question, and I love to hear the answers to it. And that is, is there a certain person uh, in your life or a certain moment in your career that's really impacted you as an individual, impacted you as a professional? Um, and if so, what would that be? Um, yeah, my first few years of the career were in a trauma level one uh, center emergency department. Uh, the learning curve was steep. And the fast-paced procedural interventions were my passion. 
Uh, I took a lot of pride in that part of my training. Um, after I got married, I needed hours that better accommodated my work-life balance and a position became available that included rehabilitation, which is an inpatient pediatric facility. Uh, as you can imagine, it was quite different from the emergency room. And I felt myself learning a whole new set of long-term care skills, trauma support, coaching for coping skills. Um, the patients and families I interacted with on the unit made such an impact on me and taught me the value in parts of my job that I'd not seen as important, uh, the value of not fixing, right, but rather being present, uh, the value of navigating negative emotions, the value of listening instead of talking, and the value of resiliency. And those skills have served me now in every environment and have made me a better specialist when I'm in the fast paced or the procedural heavy units. And they also have served me well as a mother. Uh, that unit will always hold a precious spot in my heart. You spoke so pointedly to the beginning part of your career and how it really helped to mold you. And then also how it spilled over into your personal life and into things that maybe you needed to know that you didn't know that you needed to know. And sometimes I look back on my career at nursing and I think, gosh, that patient, that coworker, that moment has made me react differently, has made me maybe pause or take time when I would normally rush through something. But I remember how impactful it was to sit in that moment with that patient or with that coworker or the approach that I had. It, it, it made an impact on me. It made an impact on them. I'm not going to rush through that in my personal life. I'm going to I'm going to allow myself a little bit of space to just sit and those things, those um almost life lessons really are so that they need to they need to be taken as what they are, which is really just a treasure that you find. Sometimes, you know, I feel like when we're in kind of the I don't know, I want to say like the trenches or the bowels of, of healthcare. And you feel like you're kind of in a, a little bit of a dungeon <laughs> or a cave, mm -hmm. however you'd like to see it, where it's just not the most hospitable place. But I remind myself that there are still some beautiful things to be found there. There's still some, some treasure to be mined. And that if you're wise, you'll pick them up and put them in your pocket. And you may not always be in that same place. You may not always be in that same unit. You may not be always in that same season, but there are still things that you can take away. And I love that you were able to recognize those moments and again, put them in your pocket, take them with you. Um, and obviously they're still very meaningful for you today. So thank you for sharing that with us. We really appreciate that. And again, always love to hear those moments, those personal impactful moments that you have recognized along the way. So I am going to change the trajectory of our questions just a little bit because we would like to get to know you um, a little bit better. So I have a few rapid fire questions and they're really about kind of your favorites. So if you were not a child life specialist, let's say you could do any other role, what would you do? There's two different modes I would love to do. Uh, my husband travels a lot for work and I would love to travel alongside him um, and be, I saw them when I traveled to Africa, uh, there were goodwill ambassadors and I would love to do that role and work alongside individuals that are in different communities um, and see the world. 
Uh, a lot of times those individuals were working in orphanages or helping promote NGOs. If I had to pick something that was not in caregiving at all, uh, it would be a maker. Um, in a dream world, I've had this, I would have this small corner of space somewhere and I'd feature different crafts some rotating through. And I tend to hyper fixate on something that I can make as a way of self-care. I lean toward this method uh, because it can be productive. Uh, and then I dive deep and I tend to master it pretty well. So the creative space in my brain has always been very active. Um, so I like to, I like to make, that would be fun. That is awesome. I could definitely use your creative skills, especially my seven-year-old. She loves to craft and I'm not really sure. I don't think genetically that was given to her, but she likes to craft and I'm, I'm supportive in a very, <laughs> I have, I have glue. Let's make it happen. So I love that you just have, to, you know, these different interests and obviously they play a role in what you currently do, but still, I love that you, you feed your soul in different ways. So I do have some categories of favorites. And I guess one of the first questions that I love is what's your favorite book? Uh, all time. It can be something you're currently reading, whichever. Um, when I was a child, my favorite book was the BFG the big friendly giant. And then, you know, you go through school, you're required to do all this reading. And I, uh, in my degree in psychology, it was a lot of reading. And so I fell out of love with, with books in general and just kind of rediscovered them in the last two years. Um, and I have quite a few nonfiction books. I love uh, the power of showing up is an incredible parenting book about presence I'm currently reading a lot of mystery novels um, and they're simple and they're fun. And I'm always trying to guess what happened. Uh, there's a series of coffee house mysteries by Cleo Coyle, which is, I think, a, a pen name. Um, but they're, they follow a coffee owner in New York and she always ends up in the middle of some kind of murder mystery. So those are good. Well, I, I like a good who whodunit book. I'm not going to lie. I especially like it when they surprise me when like I didn't think or didn't really have maybe the clues all together, but I do, I do like it when it surprises me. So yay. Well, thank you for that. Um, favorite movie uh, again, best of all time or something that you currently enjoy. I couldn't narrow it down. Cause I feel like TV and movie kind of, you got to <laughs> have a favorite in each, right? Sure. Um, Scrubs is my all-time favorite show. We actually named our daughter after one of the main characters. There was also an obscure series that did not last long called Pushing Daisies. And I'm sure it's on some streaming service. They had about two seasons, uh, but it was very fantastical and it had a stacked cast of stars. But I would say my favorite movie of all time is Jerry Maguire. That is a throwback. And I, re I honestly, I remember going to see that in the movie theater. I think it was one of the first movies that was not like a kitty movie, um, quote unquote, that I was able to go and see. And I think we all, I think, I think anyone who's seen that movie has just those one liners that were so impactful and they still stand the test of time today. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Jerry Maguire, it is a classic. Both Caitlin and I are recommending that you go and see it. So, okay. Favorite musical artist. Um, I am constantly finding new artists. I feel like social media has helped promote people that have a small fan base. So I like a lot of different genres, but consistently my favorite band of all time is Third Eye Blind. I tend to jump on my phone and I have um, a music app that just really 
kind of throws me in multiple different directions, depending on which playlist I decide to hit. And so, yeah, every now and again, they'll, they'll throw a couple of, you know, what I consider that just music of my generation, those of my brothers, like in the same breath, it's still great music. And so if you haven't heard <laughs> of Third Eye Blind or any of those that were kind of around that same era, you also, we would highly recommend that you just go, go on your music app, look them up, hit a playlist. You will be energized. Um, you will be challenged and you'll probably hear some really cool guitar in the midst of all of that. So well, Caitlin, um, what other hobbies or uh, like a self-care go-to, what, what would be one of those for you? Um, self-care is I love doing face masks and painting my nails every week. Uh, it feels like armor. I didn't realize that it was consistently something I was doing until my husband pointed it out. And it gives me a chance to sit down, be present with my own caretaking. And I often think about weekly to-dos and take that time to kind of orient myself to the coming week. Um, And hobbies and interests, uh, the list is long. Uh, I love trying new crafts. I think that um, there's always something exciting to put in front of yourself, to challenge yourself. And they open opportunities for me to align my focus on something immediately productive uh, and not related to healthcare. Uh, so I make my own soap. Uh, I make my own bread. Uh, I love felting. I make jewelry. Uh, I occasionally do like a small market in the neighborhood. Uh, and my newest is the crochet style. I'm going to say it probably wrong, but the amagurumi. So making really small little lovies. Um, and I'm doing that for Uh, the kiddos in my life, my child, my uh, niece and nephews. And so it's productive and it's fun, but um, it's just a really nice thing to sit down and do. I tend to take on, or at least try different things. I told you earlier, I'm not like one of what I would consider the most creative soul, especially when it comes to things like crafting, et cetera. But I do, I have tried a variety of things. And even in the trying, I have learned a lot about myself. Um, I have learned, you know, even if you're not naturally good at something, it's still okay to try. And it may be, you know, it may not ever hang in a museum, but I have certainly painted um, and done some paint by numbers, which is a thing, y'all. If you've never tried it, you can make a painting that's just, it's probably the best one you'll ever make. During COVID, I did a few different ones um, during that time, just because, well, I had a lot more free time on my hands. (laughs) And by free time, I mean home time. And so during that time, I got into like painting by numbers and I just really enjoyed it. And when I was done, I was like, oh, look at me. So creative. (laughs) Now, granted, again, it was painting by numbers. So it was going to turn out good as long as I didn't get too crazy um, and not follow the guide. But I, I enjoyed just the making of something and the time that it took. And I look back on those and and they, they remind me that even in the midst of what was often chaotic and crazy times, I was able to make something beautiful. So there was beauty to be found even in the midst. So well, look at you. You were saying you're not very crafty, but look at the things you did. Oh, I'm proud yeah. of you for trying. I think it's, by numbers, you know, I think as adults, we don't, and I don't mean it as being paternalistic or um, patronizing, but I think we need to be proud of one another and say it out loud, you know, and praise the process rather than the product. So 
I'm proud of you. You're doing great. Thank you. And, you know, sometimes I think the the reason as adults, we're less likely to try something is because we're afraid that we're not going to be good at it. And Mm -hmm. so I just kind of enter into those (laughs) crafty and, or just those try moments with the idea that more than likely I will not, I will not be the Mozart of this craft or this project probably will not be the case. Sometimes I surprise myself, but overall I just enjoy it. And again, fear of failure has kept me from too many things (laughs) in life. And I just, you know, I absolutely refuse to do that anymore. So more power to those for who, who are triers. There's a quote that I kind of think about anytime I start something I've never done before um, is approach each day, like a four-year-old and a Batman (laughs) t-shirt. Total confidence. And then I'll finish something like um, I made my daughter uh, a crocheted Pokemon and I handed it to her and she goes, this looks incredible. And I said, I know I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, thank you. Thank you. I, Mm -hmm. I, I knew it looked good to begin with, but now that you've said it, let me pat myself back a little bit. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kaylin, for sharing all that with us and just uh, the enjoyment of listening to you. If our audience would like to follow you online, um, are there, I know that you'd uh, put some different website recommendations as well as your email. So if you want to kind of speak to those uh, for our audience. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the Levine Children's has an Instagram as well. And that's a really good opportunity just to uh, peek at our service lines. Um, <clears throat> we just had the U.S. News and World Report presentation as well. So that was exciting. Um, my daughter may or may not be one of the kids that did the presentation. So you can get a little peek at her. Um, the two resources for further information at ACLP uh, and the Levine's page on the Atrium Health website give good information about the Child Life Department. Uh, ACLP is going to talk to you all things certification process, uh, standards of practice. And um, as far as me personally, um, I have a work email address that I'm on often, which is just my name, caitlin.parker at atriumhealth.org. And then I do have a personal Instagram um, if people are interested. Um, I love connecting with other professionals or families in the caregiving realm. Um, so it's just Caitlin H. Parker. Um, and feel, feel free to peek at that and check that out. Appreciate having some different resources. And again, just the, I think for nursing, that when we're looking at how can we enhance our practice? How can we draw from the different resources around us? And even if we don't have, you know, child life in our hospital and or in our department, one, you pointed out, we can advocate for that, but then two, we can also find some of these different resources that you are recommending and and giving to us. And something that we incorporate ourselves um, and draw from. So thank you so much for sharing that. We really appreciate having you on the podcast. You bring such a different perspective. We often need that reminder, I think in nursing, but in healthcare in general, I think just the reminder that we are all playing on the same team. We all are on the same side and all advocating for the same thing. And it may be in different ways. Um, It may be in, in a different mindset. And that's actually that gaining that perspective is really what we 
need as a team. I think it's often interesting if you get a group of people together and you ask them, you know, from all different specialties and you ask them to solve a problem or look at an issue, nine times out of 10, you're going to have as many different perspectives as you have people in the room. And so when you bring a healthcare team together to run through, you know, the different diagnosis and problems and issues that are facing a patient, we're all going to look at it a little different and that's okay because that patient deserves having that many eyes on whatever it is they're facing. And all together, we can come up with a solution or multiple solutions and have them have the chance to choose. That's what healthcare is supposed to be. That's like the ideal model of healthcare is to bring lots of different options from a lot of different people so that patients feel like they're seen they're heard, they're valuable, and we we work together well and we respect one another. Um, and so I appreciate everything that you've just kind of brought in and reminded. I think that's also another thing. It's just a good reminder. Every now and again, we need, we all as healthcare professionals need just a good reset and a good reminder. Uh, well, Caitlin, I do want to thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for sharing your expertise and uh, really explaining the profession of child life, but also from such a personal aspect and and your unique perspective on uh, creating those good stories uh, during those negative moments is really, really important and impactful. And for those that don't have child life, I know you put a plug in for uh, advocating for it, but um, for those that have a long journey ahead before that happens, I appreciate you sharing some tools um, to make a successful experience for patients and their their caregivers. So thank you so much for that. And we're really looking forward to seeing you in person in Charlotte. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to take this time to thank you, Caitlin, for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your time, your passion with us. And again, as Michael said, we're looking forward to spending some face-to-face time with you in Charlotte, North Carolina for BCN Learn Live on November 13th through the 15th of 2023. Check out the registration information at bcn.org backslash learn live to see the lineup of speakers and topics. Get registered and come meet us in Charlotte and to all of our listeners. We hope you will stay tuned as we continue with BCN and Friends and bring you new, meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I'm Holly Briggs, here with Michael Dexter, and on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, we are out.